Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 188, recorded for the week of November 9th, 2022. The Cloud Pod thinks the AWS Switzerland region is a big plus. <laughs> 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 watching you, Watch. Watch you guys turn out to laugh is kind of hilarious. Took, so I, I will, uh, you know, for, so we when we write our show notes uh, for all our listeners at home. We 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 list out our really terrible ideas, and then we all try to pick one that we. And so Jonathan put this in there, and and I'm reading through it. I'm like, the Cloudpod thinks they switch the is a big plus, and I'm like, I don't I don't get it. And then like, and then I got it. <laughs> but it was like two or three minutes later. I was like, "Oh!" And now that's how. So when I had to, we explained this before the show, and then I read it out loud, and they all just tried not well, to snicker through the laughter I, of it. I could not help it. Yeah, <laughs> I broke. Yeah. yeah, it's a big plus. Yeah, you're my right. wife would hate it as a joke. My wife would hate it, which means I love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she doesn't listen yeah. to you on the podcast anyway, so she'll never know. <laughs> yeah. She'll my, never know. Yeah. Spousal listening to our podcast. I don't know how many of them do that. So. <laughs> not here yeah uh well we actually have a uh, a shorter show this week after the two mammoth shows we just did i'm actually really pleased about this so we're finally gonna talk about dora uh dora report came out uh at the end of september and it's been in her show note backlog for weeks now just we haven't been able to fit it in uh but we, you know we all love the dora report here or the state of the devops report and so uh, this year's report uh companies across uh, rates companies across three dimensions software delivery performance Operational performance and organizational performance. Uh, they interviewed, or say they surveyed about thirteen hundred and fifty people, working professionals across the across the globe. Uh, and SLSA uh, or Software Supply Chain Security was a big focus in this year's survey, in particular. Uh, you know, one of the things they talked about was one of the biggest impacts to security practices is actually cultural, not technical. And uh, high trust, low blame cultures focused on performance were one and at half times more likely to have above average adoption of emerging security practices than low trust, high blame cultures focused on power of rules. Uh, so one of the changes this year in the report, uh, they did start segmenting out the, the group in a couple different ways. But the one that you're traditionally used to is the elite performer, uh, high performer, low performer ranking. But this year they actually said that the elite performer versus high performer was not enough of a differentiation. And so they just lumped them together, um, which may be a reflection of the people who took the survey um, uh, but their hypothesis was without evidence that software development has seen a reduced innovation in terms of practices, tooling, and information sharing, possibly due to the pandemic. Uh, but they're going to do some follow-up research to see if that is the case. So in 2021, they had 26% of respondents in elite, 40 and high, 28% in medium, and 7% in low performing. Whereas in 2022, it was 11% in high, 69% in medium, and 19% in low. Um, which again, I, th- I don't know if that's a reflection of actually a, a deteriorating DevOps situation or just really survey you know respondents once again could be maturing right it could be that too um which actually is a good segue to their their new clustering methodology they added in this year um is they're adding in the this new grouping called starting flowing slowing and retiring uh and so they basically break this into a starting group performs neither well nor poorly across any of the dimensions they focus on the flowing cluster performs well across all characteristics of high reliability high stability and high throughput uh, the slowing do not deploy too often, but when they do, they are likely to succeed. And this is typically a team incrementally improving, but they have ha- and they have customers who are mostly happy with the current state. And then the retiring is teams that work on a service or app that is valuable to them and the customer, but no longer under active development. 
and they broke down the population as 20% in the starting, 17% in the flowing, slowing is 34%, and retiring is 21%. I don't like the name of the slowing, <laughs> but other than that, I don't mind the other three categories. I'm not sure I quite understand them all. You know, like I, I get what they're going for, um, but it is sort of strange to me because when I think about a team and not a product or, or process, like it's a little... It's a little strange to think of a team as flowing, for instance, right? And and the the, the maturity of that team and their processes fitting that description looks a little strange. Yeah, so I don't. The slowing makes me sound like they're not doing as well. But what they're saying is they're actually incrementally growing, but slowly. That's a different problem altogether. Uh, these just make me realize how abstract our jobs are. <laughs> <laughs> or how you can abstract our jobs away. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, let me, let me go find this thing here. Um, so they, they have the flowing group in particular. You know, they're talking about basically the things they see in highly flowing teams are loosely coupled architectures that provide flexibility in the work arrangements. They use version control, continuous CI with uh, typically a centralized trunking methodology and a continuous delivery capability focused on production safety, sustainability, and efficiency to be in that flowing category. So you're really, that's where you want to be. That's kind of like the old high achieving group. Um, but now it really focused on those particular categories. I really guess it depends on, on what your product is and where it's deployed as well. I mean, highly unlikely you're going to be in the flowing category if you're running a server in the closet or maybe even in a, in a colo someplace. Yeah, that's true. Uh, they talked about cloud adoption. They saw an overall 36% increase in the use of public cloud, uh, 25% increase in hybrid cloud usage uh, this year in those numbers and metrics. They did see no cloud dropped about 50% in the respondent rate, so... Uh, everyone's using cloud somewhere, just a question of where. Uh, the SRE section, they talked, I spent a lot of time talking about the J-curve, uh, and what they were talked about was that um, they're seeing in the data that orgs uh, hit early success, uh, followed by periods of diminished returns or even regressions on their SRE journey. Uh, but for companies that persist through the challenges of that, they're saying they see often experience renewed and sustained levels of elevated achievement to that. Um, so then there was a, a bunch of surprises that were sort of interesting, that they highlighted. Uh, first of all, they they talk about loosely coupled architecture might actually be contributing to burnout on teams. Uh, they think there should be an opposite effect, but the, it was counter to what research they see in the past. But they go on later in the article to talk about um, basically unplanned work, which is a, a leading contributor to burnout. And that in the loosely coupled architecture, sometimes without proper planning, you end up with more unplanned work, which is not necessarily unplanned, but it's it's an evolution of the agile and, and negotiating the contracts between the loosely coupled architecture components. And so people may be seeing it as um, unplanned and, and burnout related, but really it's just part of the benefit of what you're getting. It just takes more work up front. Yeah, it's one of the hardest challenges, right? As you decouple things is to keep all those separate things now marching in sync. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier in a monolithic sort of structure or a monorepo structure, you know, to, to try to get that all marching in the same direction at the same time. So like, it's, it's true. I mean, it's one of those things you find, you always find out that what it doesn't work in integration way late in the process, you still got to meet the release deadline. Yep. I guess the early successes make sense because if, if you're starting from nothing, it's, it's, you know, there's the low hanging fruit. It, it's easy to make early wins and then it is a slog. Enthusiasm's hard to maintain too, right? Like, you know, rallying up, we're, we're making this change. We're, we're introducing all this great stuff to achieve great things, achieving that, you know, maintaining that over, you know, years, that, that level of energy is very difficult. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. something to be said for 
people being excited to work on the shiny new thing and not the uh, the grind. Mm. And then the shiny new thing becomes the grind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, other surprises, security requirements uh, that are defined and controlled by a centralized security organization may be more difficult for teams to decouple their software from other teams. So actually, uh, centralized security is basically a hindrance to loosely coupled architecture, which I've seen in the yeah. real world. <laughs> uh, and so again, this is another reason why you, be sh- you should be shifting left your security concerns, and that's important. Um, they talked about the trunking-based uh, practices and prior reports ha- um, were a positive view on software delivery, but in this year they were seen as a negative impact. Um, and they don't know if that's just a fluke in the, in the, again, the user population um, or if it's an actual trend. So again, they're going to keep an eye on that. Uh, they did say that software delivery performance is beneficial to organizational performance when operational performance is also high, yet many respondents did not have high operational performance, yet still said their software delivery and organizational performance was good. So that tells me that SRE uh, is maybe not fully adopted still in many organizations, and they don't have good metrics and KPIs around that. But um, that's an area I think it's just, again, I think SRE is so new that I think this is an area that the market's still kind of catching up to. I mean, I, SRE doesn't feel new, but it's also sort of like operational performance can be measured in a lot of different ways. If you're strictly talking about uptime and, and production availability, fine. But it's also like, I think it's too hard to separate when you're filling out one of these surveys that your your operational team's performance in terms of delivery of environment or delivery of well, and they and they they purely think operational. You know, the survey questions are specifically around reliability and uptime. So, I mean, I, they, they sort of bias the question because, you know, your service may be failing but recovering nicely and not impacting KPIs because you've built in resiliency. But that's not, you know, it, again, it depends on how you measure these things, and that's not always a clear, you know, unified answer. Uh, let's see let's, what else they had here. Documentation practices sure came up as a negative impact to software delivery performance, which again is, is at odds with prior reports where documentation was highlighted as a key driver to success of an organizational delivery performance. Um, reliability engineering practices seem to have a negative impact on software delivery performance, which I agree and it should <laughs> because you need to actually design reliability into your software delivery. And so that's a, that's a change for a lot of companies. Um, and then there was a thought that SLSA or the security uh, lifecycle is going to have some association between implementation of security and performance, but they were surprised that security practices were actually the mechanism through which technical capabilities impacted software delivery performance and organizational performance. Uh, so those are all the big surprises they had. Uh, they also focused on Westrom's organizational topology, and they break the organizational culture into uh, pathological leadership, bureaucratic leadership, and generative leadership. And they talked about generative leadership being a big focus of successful organizations, which makes sense. Uh, and then they talked about the the importance of team stability as teams that were together for more than 12 months appeared to have a higher uh, higher performing organizational standards. So um, so then they, you know, they go into all that little nitty-gritty detail of the report. Uh, and they do break into demographics. And again, I mentioned earlier that there was uh, 1,350, but... It's interesting looking at the demographics. They are, uh, you know, very heavy U.S. and India as the two main regions that participated this year in the survey. Twenty-one uh, percent, I believe, was in U.S. and then twenty. Let me find it here real quick. Oh, then uh, no, sorry, twenty-nine percent in America and twenty-one percent in India, and then no other country was more than eight percent of the population. So. I was thinking about our outsource culture, and and I wonder if some of these things are a reflection of the outsource culture where we dump repetitive non-value work to India 
inappropriately, by the way. But that's why you know a lot of companies do that, and so that's why this is maybe skewing some of these data sets to be a little bit more um, not aligned to what they've seen in prior years. Mm, interesting. It's hard to compare though because they didn't yeah. actually um, break down countries before. Um, it's a new question this year, so this is the first time they've ever actually looked at the country population. But something to kind of keep an eye on because again, I wonder if we do a really good job on DevOps and organizational health and these things in the U.S. and I don't know, and in other you know countries that have pretty strong IT organizations, I don't know that we do a good job exporting that to to India and to our outsourcing partners. Or, and I think it's an area we probably need to focus on as an industry. And in, in fact, we do the opposite, right? We take all this stuff instead of refining the process and and adding efficiencies and you know there we just you know dump it over to india for them to resolve just clicking the button with humans back like yep. it's i'd say also even here in the us though i mean although there are devops organizations who are maturing their capabilities there's lots of companies now who are just rebranding everything they do as devops yep and so yeah we're my title is DevOps, and I got into the interview, and basically, we we do everything. Mm-hmm. We do everything just like we used to, and we call it DevOps. So yeah, well, that was, that was really the the problem with uh, the fact that we really bastardized the whole idea of DevOps as a as a cultural change, not as a team thing. And then we labeled all these teams that were doing something similar and said, "No, no that's the DevOps team," and it was a, a whole violation of the whole principles of what mm-hmm. DevOps was supposed to be. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. We're gonna the 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 thought that we're gonna make it one team and call it DevOps, and then the end result is we have three teams: Dev, Ops, and DevOps. Mm-hmm. In the yeah. end, that's <laughs> what happened, right? Like, and it's like, is this? Wait, are we developers on the application? No, we're just release engineers. All of a sudden, how did this happen? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, that is very true and unfortunate. Uh, you know, so overall, uh, did you guys have any other opinions about the the door report? From your reading through, I, th- I thought it was sort of, I know I'm really inspired by the Dora report. I was not as inspired this year. I don't know if, again, because it, it's more not as, ob- there's something really revolutionary in the report this year, or it's just not as, you know, again, because the, there wasn't a lot of high elite performers to compare yourself to. It maybe didn't really feel like more status quo. I don't know. I couldn't quite figure it out either, but I had a hard time reading this report as well. Like, and it just seemed like the tone was off like it wasn't yeah it wasn't exciting it wasn't inspirational like you know that's which is usually what i take away from this which is like you know there's other companies that are in the same position i am in and there's companies that are doing far better and these are the practices that are working um there was less of that tone and i think it was more i don't know if they're you know i don't know if it was just trying to be statistical or or you know trying to remove bias but it was i ended up skimming through most of it uh, if I'm honest. And so, but I do like the fact they did talk, you know, the part I did find expiring was that the the culture of security, because it's something I've been up on a soapbox for a long time, which is like, you can't have a centralized security just enforcing rules because it's going to lead to things like shadow IT and people circumventing these rules in order to, to get their job done. And so you really have to treat security as a partnership and as a service and use your expertise in the security field to help the rest of the business, not treat them like children who need to be supervised. I had a hard time figuring out how I could use the, the information in the report really to to better myself or 
the team or anybody else. It's, it seemed it, it did seem very statistical, and it, and, and it really is. But it's it's hard to to take any of the contents and say okay, with the exception of the security thing, which is something that we've known about for a long time. But I guess it's nice to have that surfaced in a report that people are going to read. Um, but yeah, no, it wasn't wasn't really thrilling. And the fact that they changed the the way they measure things year over year makes it difficult to to really um, interpret any trends. A bit more standardization would be good. So yeah. Yeah, we'll see what they, you know, what they how they evolve it for this year or 2023. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I definitely think I'll be going back to the 2021 report for inspiration when I need it, because mm-hmm. uh, I think there's a little bit more, a little bit more of that high performers to compare yourself to in that one than this year. So, but that doesn't mean it's not bad. I mean, there's still good data there. It's just don't 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 maybe send this one out to all your CIO friends and say like this is super important. You should do this because <laughs> I don't know that it reads that way this time around. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to uh, AWS, who has their new region in Zurich, Switzerland, open for business, becoming the 28th region, EU Central-2. The new region has three availability zones and a wide selection of AWS services for all of your needs. And I guess based on Swi- in Zurich, Switzerland, it's going to be a lot of banking needs. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, definitely going to be a good region in Europe. I'm sure a lot of customers are going to be interested in this one. I'm sure it's a nice, uh, a nice addition, you know, having another DR site within there, you know, within the, uh, strict, uh, data confines. So it's good. All right. You guys have much to say about Switzerland other than the flag is a big plus. So <laughs> big plus. <laughs> I definitely want to go check it out. I, I hear it's beautiful. Oh yeah. Zurich is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I had the joy of going and visiting, uh, Zurich Financial Services one time for a, a client, you know, they were a client of mine at a prior life. And uh, I had to then go to our data center in Amsterdam. And so I booked a train. Uh, and so I took the train from Zurich Ooh. through Germany to Amsterdam. And that was the best train trip I've ever taken in Europe. <laughs> it's just everything was gorgeous. Uh, you know, you came into Munich, you know, in the, in the big Gothic churches and stuff in Munich. And then you head into Amsterdam from there. Uh, and I, it was sort of funny, though, because you, you in Munich, you switch from Swiss rail to German rail. And you go from precision by a clock stopping at every like I mean like I had the timetable and like we were at every stop exactly when they said we would be, and then I got to Germany and we were on German rail and it was late eighteen minutes by the time we got to the end. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah. I mean they are known for their watches. So <laughs> they yeah. are known. They are known for their time <laughs> precision. That is a definite thing. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code, and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice. Uh, well, AWS has fixed one of those annoyances uh, that you notice only when your SOC team comes to you and says, instance, IAB34 blah, 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 has a potential security issue and we'd like you to fix it. And they give you zero metadata other than the account. 
uh, and you're like, well, I have deployed resources deployed everywhere. Uh, I don't know where that thing lives, and I need to find it. And then so your typical answer was go click through each region in the AWS console. Or, like Ryan and I and, and Jonathan have done many times, we go write Boto3 code <laughs> and parse all of our AWS regions to find the instance in question to do something about it. Uh, AWS, though, has finally ended our suffering, or maybe, I mean, I'll probably stick with my script, but uh, AWS has ended it for everyone else who just learned this is a problem by giving you the new AWS Resource Explorer, and with it you can search through your AWS resources and your, AD, and your account across regions using metadata such as name, tag, and ID, and when you find the resource, you can quickly jump to the correct service page to work with that resource immediately. Uh, to do, use it, you do enable some indexes and querying and an aggregator. Uh, and you can also create custom views and data sets using the queries to the aggregator for quick access later. Uh, and my only point to this is like, this is great, I love it, but can you please extend it to the organization? Because when, yeah. when the other problem is SOC doesn't always give you the right account either. Right. <laughs> I have to assume that that's coming because that's the biggest you know advantage to something like this is being able to search all of your accounts at once, um, especially you know in modern terms. And so like it's it's coming. It has to be coming. Yeah, I'm putting it on my list of potential reinvent announcements. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's free, yeah. free to use too, which is cool. When I, when I saw the thing about having to click to enable the indexer or the the aggregator, was like, oh, okay. And how much is this going to cost? Yeah. yeah, no, I'm shocked. But, but no, no, zero additional cost. They probably realize though that people like you and I, who write scripts that just fire off tens of thousands of API requests to all mm-hmm. the uh, all the accounts, all the regions, mm-hmm. probably cost them more than than it would to just deliver this service. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's I mean, just can't. the EC2 API alone to pull the list of regions, right? <laughs> like that that module, <laughs> just hitting that every run. I still don't think you can find an IP address, though, that's attached to an instance. What? It's a, yeah. It's an, Unless, I'm, uh, I'm looking at the query syntax for Boto3 and yeah, like, I'm trying yeah. to... Unless you have a, an AIP, which has its own ID. I don't think... You could just plug in an IP address and say which instance is this IP come from. So it's still not the, um, the uh, final solution you, from you know the SOC team requests. But I'm sure you get the virtual NIC returned, but then and you still have to connect the dots. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I have to play around. <laughs> yeah, it was. I definitely enabled the I enabled the indexes. And then I I forgot to go back and play with it after I enabled the indexes because it doesn't work immediately. You have to wait a couple minutes for it to populate mm-hmm. the indexes. But um, that's what I did too. <laughs> I got that far in my testing, and, was, and then something uh, shiny. Yeah. Uh, well, that's it for AWS. I mean, that's that's the least amount of AWS news we've had in a very long time. <laughs> so thanks for that, AWS. Yeah, they're they're preparing. They're just doing that. <laughs> yeah, they're just they're just you know breathing in deeply for all the reinvent noise they're about to make. <gasps> you know, they're about to spew a ton of data onto us. I'm sure in the next few weeks. Well, GCP is announcing the MongoDB uh, connector for Apigee integrations. They like to say that MongoDB is a developer-friendly application data platform that makes it easy for developers to access a wide variety of data using a unified language interface simplifying the data handling process. Uh, I can also tell you that MongoDB is not an enterprise-friendly application because it will cost you an arm and a leg. <laughs> but you know, developers might find it friendly. I, yeah. as, a, as yeah. a purchaser and a user of it, I don't find it friendly. Yeah, uh, MongoDB Atlas, of course, is their fully managed cloud database for those who also want to burn even more money running Mongo, <laughs> uh, which enhances MongoDB capabilities even further with a full test search and real-time analytics, as well as event-driven and mobile experiences. Uh, Apigee has partnered with Mongo to provide a solution to ease and secure access to siloed data for internal developers or partners, and this is now being announced as a new connector between Apigee and Mongo. The connector saves you time and allows your dev team to focus on your apps versus dealing with connector logic and workflows. And they talk about this in the article as like, 
creating connector, you know, creating connection strings to Mongo was really difficult. So again, I go back to this developer friendly comment. <laughs> I'm not sure how developer friendly it is if it's difficult to do, but uh, you know, this basically helps you eliminate some toil and some undifferentiated heavy lifting on how you connect between your MongoDB and your Apogee um, interface. I, no, yeah. I think the, the thing that it does do, though, which may have been difficult to do within Mongo natively, is you know, think of all the healthcare applications and finance applications where you want row-based security and you want to limit certain applications from accessing certain data where you need to transform data on um, on request. All that stuff would be really hard to do in Mongo. It's just it was never built to to handle data like a relational database. But if you stick Apogee in front of the Mongo database backend, you can specify rules and say that this user, this this service account, can have access to all the data. This other user, um, we're going to obfuscate this particular field, or this this other user, uh, we're just not going to return this stuff. So it, it lets you have really fine grained, almost I'm going to say row based because it's not um, a relational database, but effectively gives you the same types of controls over the over the data return to the to the clients as um, as all these other you know Postgres and SQL row based security systems would. Provide. Is it native? Like I know you can do transformations, but are can you just say you know like are the the is the rule engine native to the the connector to the integration? Yeah, and you and you can okay. bring, sort of bring your own um, uh, just as Lambda has you know custom authorizers and things. You can build custom authorizers for this. Okay, you've just changed my mind real time because my first take on this was I hated this. I was like, this is this is just lazy development, right? Like being able to query centralized things and not knowing where the back end is or knowing where the data is. And this is just going to lead to, you know, MongoDB sprawl and resource, you know, abuse. But yeah. Now, and, uh, now the, I get it. The, the, the other thing, <laughs> I mean, I guess the, the other thing it does is it, it puts a, a RESTful interface in front of the data store. Right. And that, that opens up a whole bunch of opportunities with other integrations to other services. Well, and that's really what, you know, like the microservices framework or, you know, architectural pattern is really provided and people, are, you know, need to do that and really, to adhere to a microservice contract, you have to put that API layer in front of your data set. And so I still think that there's this is ripe for abuse, um, but yeah, I get it. Everything is ripe for abuse in your hands. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's yep. true. If it's any good, if it's yeah. worth anything. It's the the first abuse. thing I try to do is break everything, so it does make sense. Yeah. <laughs> Boto, ripe for abuse. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, well, Flex committed use discounts, a simple new way to discount compute engine instances on Google, is now available. Now, <laughs> we talked about it when it came out in preview, and you had to get access to it. And then they announced it at Google Next, but you couldn't actually use it. <laughs> so now, officially, you can now officially use it. So if you're not on the preview list, you don't have an account rep, and you want to get a flexible committed use discount, you can now go click the button in the console. It all exists. And all the reporting now works, which... If, Someone in the preview, the reporting didn't work very well. That's a bonus. Uh, so that's a win. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so there you go. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Flexible Cuts are, because you haven't heard those episodes where we talked about it at depth in the past, uh, it's similar and superior to resource-based cuts. Uh, it's also similar to savings plans <laughs> on AWS. Uh, if your workloads need may change over time, you take advantage of new instance families. This allows you to get that commitment without locking into a specific N1 or N2 instance class. Uh, Kids can be purchased from any billing account, and the discount can apply to any eligible usage and products paid for by that billing account. Uh, the discounts, are, of course, are not quite as good as resources because you are again not committing specifically to like an N1 or or N2 class, but uh, you are getting more flexibility, and you're paying a little bit less to get that flexibility. 
or sorry, a little bit more to get that flexibility. So do make sure you determine the right balance between the two types of CUDs uh, in the future so you get the right discounting level for your workload. I mean, this type of flexibility is is another arrow in the quiver, right? Because if you stick to specific resource allocations, right, you can stifle innovation. Like, so we've you know we've already committed for three years to to run on this instance type, and so we've already got the CPU to burn or whatever. You know, like it's why would you prioritize any kind of efficiencies there? But you know, having this sort of middle ground where you can say you know it's not directly tied to those specific resources and you can still get that savings is a great great plan to move, you know, to transition to another, another set and maybe repurchase, you know, resource specific because of once you're done, like it's great. I mean, there's been so many, so many times where, you know, we've seen Amazon on their side, right. Where they would come out with, you know, they have Intel based, uh, C3 instances, right. And then they came out with a C4 and then they added C4As for AMD. And it's like, Oh, I could save 10% if I use AMD over an Intel, but you were locked mm-hmm. in because you bought an, you bought a reserved instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Graviton came out on Google, on Amazon. And so, you know, if you were locked in, you would not get the advantages of Graviton. But because they moved a savings plan on, on AWS, it now became like, oh, well, I can go experiment with Graviton. I can go experiment with yeah. AMD. I can go make that choice because now I have that flexibility. And so they're on the same thing as for Google. So you can mm-hmm. now go use Google, uh, you know, instances that have different Intel chips or AMD chips or when they get better, more ARM-based processors, you can now use those as well. Um, it is a little bit limited to the number of instances types that it covers for FlexCuds, but I assume that's just an expansion thing. It's going to happen over time um, when availability is maybe a little bit better on silicone uh, that they can't really resource well, well today. But you know, again, having the N1, the N2, and then I think it's also the C-class uh, instances all covered by this are really the most common general purpose instance types that you're going to need. Yeah, I, I'm sure they're I'm sure they're directing traffic with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess the only problem is this doesn't guarantee you access to a resource or it doesn't guarantee that a resource is available for right. you. So, you know, if you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's been a problem on Amazon too. And, and so they did <laughs> talk about in the article, you know, you can get a reservation in addition to this. But, you know, the, I'm not a big fan of reservations because I don't feel it's very cloudy, <laughs> you know, to have to reserve capacity. I mean, if, right. if I need to reserve capacity for regulatory reasons or for my DR contractual commitments, then that's fine. I don't mind that. But if I'm just a normal cloud customer, I want to be able to be flexible and I don't want to have to do reservations. Because the, the reality about a reservation is I pay for it if I use it or not. So it kills auto-scaling, it kills a bunch of other things um, that are really good benefits of cloud. And so reservations, I've, I've never been a big fan of them um, just because I feel like it's a really anti-cloud pattern. But it's brutal, right? When, yeah, when it's, uh, if you're, I mean, back when you only had the option of on-demand or reserved instances and you do the math and if you run the thing basically more than 40 hours a week, you might as well buy the RI. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're not getting any benefit out of scaling anyway at that right. point. So this is, this is so much better. You get the benefit of committing to an aggregate use and the discount to that with the benefit of turning stuff off when you're not using it. Yeah. But yeah. But then, but if you had to do a reservation on top of that, then you're paying a portion of the, you know, of the price for the reservation, which if you have it off, you're still paying that reservation. It's like there. It's a spreadsheet math problem, but uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it can work out in your favor, but yeah. you got to do the math. Yep. Finance is getting their way, weaseling their way into <laughs> IT. <laughs> hey, you control the you control the checkbook. You always see you know, yeah. that. Yeah. It's a position of power. <laughs> That's one thing I learned when I got into higher levels of management is that uh, I become more and more of a you know a CFO IT guy. <laughs> you know, learning how to do modeling and financial yeah. predictions that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
partner with your finance team. Yep. <laughs> Especially if you're going to cloud, like you want them to be your ally because they will mm-hmm. not understand why the costs dramatically rose today. Yeah. Uh, and they can break you. <laughs> they sure can. And you can break your company really quickly too. So you gotta, yeah, gotta be careful. All right. Then our last uh, a- group of here is Azure, uh, and they are announcing the zero downtime migration for Azure Front Door is now in preview. You can now migrate between the premium and standard Azure Front Door with zero downtime. This allows you to try the different service levels to determine if you want premium or standard, and also migrate from the classic legacy versions of Azure Front Door. Uh, they also wanted to let us know in this article that since the general availability of the new Front Door, they've added several new features to it, including Reuse. Uh, skeletons, you know, anything you decorate your door with for Halloween and, and Christmas. <laughs> uh, but really, upgrading from standard to premium without downtime, we just talked about managed identities integration is now there, so it can leverage your Azure identities. Uh, integration with the Azure App Service, uh, new pre-validated domain integrations with static web apps, uh, new Terraform uh, modules available for Azure Front Door, and the new Azure Advisor integration to make recommendations on how to save you money using your front door. Finally, they discovered a feature flex. Yeah, right. <laughs> can we can we start the lightning round early now? Yeah, <laughs> I'm giving you I'm giving you the tiebreaker right there. That's going to be the yeah. tiebreaker. <laughs> well done. All right. Well, speaking of lightning round, it's time. Peter, take it away. AWS Certificate Manager now supports elliptical curve digital signature algorithm TLS certificates. Cool. Because, now I only have to wait four years until my app can support it. Yeah. Stole my joke. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you had to sneak it in under the wire. Yeah. Uh, Amazon Elastic Cash adds support for Redis 7. I'm just going to wait till it turns up to 11, and then I'm going to cash everything. Nice. Do you cash out at that point? Yeah, definitely cash out. AWS Private 5G service now includes support for multiple radio units. So now they can, instead of only supporting 50 devices, they can now support 50 times however many radios you get. Oh, but they can charge you for per device, can't they? Yeah. Yes, they can. <laughs> Amazon ElastiCache now supports IPv6. When your caching needs to have IPv6, you know you've really lost the trail on what you need to do in your life. And, uh, you know, you, you think about your decisions and you ponder them and, and you cry a little bit and then you go to bed. And we're going to wrap it up with a uh, GA announcement. Uh, encrypt Azure storage account with cross-tenant customer-managed keys. What could go wrong finding the right customer with the right key and the right account and the right storage account? It's just a mess all the way down, and I don't know how I ever figured that out in an incident. Feature request. Make sure no one can access this data ever under any circumstance. Thanks, Azure. Oh my goodness, what a day, Ryan. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> dying to give it to Jonathan with the tiebreaker. And he yeah. just, it's like Beetlejuice. Someone threw a zipper. Too in much mouth. pressure. He couldn't get yeah. the zipper open. <laughs> <laughs> nice job, Ryan. That was a good win. Yep. I, it, you know, stealing the joke out from underneath you being quick, I feel like I earned it this time. So that's good. You did totally earn it. <laughs> I, I'm not even mad. I can't. I can't be mad when you <laughs> snake that right out from underneath me. So. All right. Well, uh, things coming up uh, once again. Reinvent is just a few short weeks away. We are excited to hear all the new amazing AWS things that are coming, 
And uh, there might be other stuff at the end of the year, but I'm tired of talking about it. So uh, we're just going to talk about reInvent. And then it's going to be the end of the year. So that's how we're going to go continue on through the end of the year here. Uh, and we'll, re- we'll recharge the uh, things coming up list uh, for the new year uh, after, after the New Year's Day. That's it. Have another fantastic week in the cloud, guys. See you later. Bye, everybody. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. All right, well, we are going to talk about Alexa. Because apparently a report came out this week that Amazon is tightening its belt and Alexa's looking a little fat. Uh, will they kill Alexa or not? Who knows? But uh, you know, in the wake of major tech companies tightening their belts, slowing down hiring, and laying off thousands of workers, Amazon is, according to, Wall- to, an all, uh, to a Wall Street Journal report, taking a hard look across its nearly $200 billion a year revenue generating businesses for unprofitable sectors and places they can cut back. And Amazon is apparently spending a lot of money on Alexa, reportedly spend, losing $5 billion a year on Alexa itself. Uh, Amazon, of course, denies this report. Uh, but it does say they are moving talent around and potentially there may be a drain of talent on Alexa if it's not profitable. Imagine they're trying to figure out how to make it more profitable for them going forward. So, uh, I don't, again, I don't know they kill Alexa. Like It would be such a such a huge pivot for them to kill Alexa at this point and it'd be a, such a backwards move for them. I can't see that happening, but maybe, you know, downturns and recessions cause hard decisions to be made. $5 billion a year also sounds like an extremely large amount of loss for a unit, which yeah. I, I don't know, like what do they spend that money on? Well, I think that, I think that includes devices. So I think the Echo speakers, all the all the Alexa HomePod, you know, all those things uh, are all part of that five billion dollar number. So all the R and D you do on new devices, the manufacturing, the distributing, the stocking, and the warehousing, all that's part of that business unit. And it might be artificially inflated because it was only what a couple of years ago that you know the main topic for reInvent was Warner talking about Alexa for business, right? And so it's. I wonder if they sort of bulked up for something that didn't happen because I I don't see uh, I don't see Alexa business anywhere right or any mention of it anymore for a long time now. Yeah, I think that's so. Bad. I, wa- and then, so uh, I wonder if they sort of were bulking up for that and never got there. Yeah, well, they 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 talked about partnerships with hotel chains. You know, where they're going to put Alexa devices into hotel rooms. Well, that just never seems to ever actually happen. Mm-hmm. You know, there's also a lot of privacy concerns now around Alexas that is, you know, maybe potentially a a risk for them in the EU, where they're concerned about potential regulatory crackdowns on on data privacy, and maybe they're worried about that. I don't know. Like, there's it's definitely been a really bright shining star for them, but also uh, they got a little too close to the sun with it in a couple areas, it got burned pretty badly. I mean, when you look back at the over the past few years since these um, home assistants have become available, do you think? the technology has evolved as much as you would have expected or would have wanted it to by now. Because I, I don't I don't use um, Alexa very often. I'm more of a Google Home person. But I, I have the same conversations. I have the same challenges. It doesn't really do a whole lot more than it did three years ago. Well, I don't – yeah, it definitely has not heavily innovated – I think in you know, its core functionality. I mean, I think you get, you get some innovations around Echo Show 
where you get the te- you know get the little screen and the, you know they built an iPad to it and it can do things you know visually as well as audio. But yeah, the, the core skills stuff seems like it's kind of hit a dead end. And I don't see a lot of people doing a lot of skills building. I don't see a lot of people announcing new skills. I mean, you and I worked at a company where they were thinking Alexa was going to be a huge market for them. And they never could figure out how to sell an engagement for more than, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, really, mm. you know, to build Alexa skills and build integrations. Um, I think and I think home automation has always been a difficult market and it's very fractured. There's a lot of players, there's a lot of different technologies, there's a lot of different pieces. And so, you know, I think it's where it's probably it's still the strongest is in home automation. But I think home automation in general has gone through a lot of uh, a lot of turmoil in the last couple of years. Well, I think that's the best part about the the home assistance is just you know how much how many more options there are for home automation as there were before them, but it is still fractured and it is you know still a challenge to get everything to work together and um, you still need a lot of sort of glue and cobbling things together to make it work. I wonder if the uh, the improvements have been really in the sort of the natural language processing and the understanding. Because I, you know, one thing like while it's still very air prone, it's a lot better than it was in the early days. Yeah, it's still not as conversational as I'd like, though. I mean, I, I imagine the the Star Trek computer kind of conversation level level of um, dealing with that kind of thing, mm-hmm. not having to choose my phrases very carefully because I know that's the way I have to get the the tool to do what I want it to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't think Earl Grey Hot is, you know, manufactured cadence in order to get the computer to do what he wanted? Because I'm pretty sure that's exactly what that is. <laughs> um, I do think that they're, you know, they did add some capabilities to it where they took um, basically the ability for it to like ask follow up questions and to, you know, further refine a question or, or prompt to it. But even that's a weird, archaic conversation. Like when you get it, when you were in that scenario where you said, hey, you know, Alexa, tell me the weather and whatever, you know, or tell me the weather in California. Then you're like, oh, actually, I want the weather in Sacramento. Um, you know, you can do that, but it's still a weird, awkward phrasing situation. Yeah, it's like, what's the temperature in Sacramento today? Blah 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 blah. And will it rain? It's like the the persistence of context in the conversation. I think I think they, they they've mm-hmm. tried, but it's not it's not quite there. It's not there yet, for sure. Yeah. I wonder if a huge misstep was trying to embed the Alexa into everything. Like, like I have headphones with it enabled. There's like, it's enabled into my son's laptop. It's, you know, like it, which I always thought was annoying. Like it was, they did, they did enablement in a Fitbit for a while. So you could have one on your, on your wrist for a thing that didn't connect to the internet. Like it, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that didn't make sense to me. Yeah. I will say having one in the car is nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, my fridge has uh, has the Alexa app installed, and every day it pops up a message. Please, please configure the Alexa app. I'm like, nope, swipe away, swipe away, swipe away. No, thank you. I don't need to make it any easier for for my uh, for my kids every day. to accidentally order things. Yeah. Oh, how frustrating that you have to do that every day. Yeah. You can't just tell it once. Can't it? Can't install the app. Yep. That's that's annoying. Uh, you know, I, I my annoyance with it actually is I'll come in and I went on my desk actually unplugged it because I knew I was going to say the word Alexa about a bajillion times. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, uh, it'll, it'll be yellow. And I'm like, why is it yellow? You know, because it's it a, a mess notification. So I'll ask it, you know, Alexa, what's your notification? And they'll tell me, I just want you to know that your inkjet printer is running low on 
uh, on ink and you should buy, you'd like us to buy you more ink or, or my, you know, we've calculated that your dryer sheets, uh, you're probably out of those. And would you like us? And like, that's just annoying. I don't want that mm-hmm. feature. <laughs> it's, but you know, you do until you don't until you do, right? Like if it was something that I, you know, like w- was actually handy, you know, and wasn't dryer sheets or, or the inkjet, which is just, I think they come low, right? They just, mm-hmm. whatever yeah, scion they, is, it's just a, how they sell them. Um, but yeah, if it was, you know, if it was like, I think this bulb is burnt out on your car or, you know, I'm trying to think of a more practical use, it would be kind of nice for something like that. And so like the ability to, to tune it and, you know, say, don't notify me this for this, but notify me for this. Like I have it all turned off because you can turn it off. And that's how I actually know that the the device is actually hooked up to my wife's account <laughs> because, oh, the yellow light's on. It's, it's using her account. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think I think that's an area that has also been sort of weak because again, my my wife is the one who bought the Prime account, so she's got Prime on hers, and I'm a guest of her Prime. That doesn't mean you get you don't get full Prime access when you do that. It's awful. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm the, thank God I'm the primary account holder. <laughs> Otherwise, I would throw them all out the window. But my wife can't do anything. Yeah, but you know, so it happened to me when we got the Alexas first. It, you know, they're in her name first, and so they're all in her account, and then it doesn't really have good multi account support. So I can't, you know, some of those features I can't even use because it doesn't <laughs> properly support multi user account integration. So, you know, I, sort of the problem, I wonder if they're held back by the hardware they've chosen to use, right? They're, they're trying to get, maintain this really low cost point, which means they can't put GPUs into this thing. They can't put things that can run ML on device. And so you you end up going back to the cloud for a lot of this capability, which has delay and latency, which is a bad user experience too. Maybe this is a good use case for the edge devices, that they're, you know, all the cloud on edge stuff. But it definitely... I wonder if it's sort of hindered by its hardware choices. You know, I have a another uh, dingus on the other side of the room from Apple uh, <laughs> that is horrendous, uh, but yeah. a, a lot of its smarts are actually in the device, and that's not much better. But is that a, is that really a reflection of Siri versus um, you know it, the hardware itself? And you know, I I would be compelled to pay for something that had more smarts inside of it, in in exchange for better privacy. Uh, and better local optimizations for these things, but it doesn't seem to exist in the market. Well, it's funny because you're probably right. They are held back by the hardware, but the user account, I think, is a pretty good indicator of the hangups that most businesses face, which is actually account management, right? It's sort of like that's a crux to a lot of businesses, and it's hard. And so like, I think they're probably more limited by just the architecture of the Amazon Commerce site's account services and what they're capable of doing. If you do want to check out a more security-oriented device that keeps your data local, uh, check out mycroft.ai. They've they've been building um, a home security assistant, security sort of um, privacy-focused home security uh, or home, home assistant, sorry. And uh, they they have they have hardware which may or may not be available yet. There was a Kickstarter a long time ago, and things kind of went slow and everything else. But um, yeah, you can you can download their their home assistant and run it locally on Raspberry Pi or something, or you can or you can buy one of their devices. But the the purpose of that is that um, it's it's very much not required to be cloud connected. Until of course you want to control things like you know doors, windows, alarms, media, that kind of thing. And then, of course, you've got to hook it up with the cloud connector and you lose all those benefits. But yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I, I always start with that privacy mindset. I'm like, I'm not turning this on. It lasts five minutes because I, I want to turn it on and off from my phone or something like that. And you're the only way to do that is by c- connecting the thing. 
So I, I, after I remembered how to spell Mycroft, uh, because <laughs> Sherlock's brother, um, I had to then go find their website. And so I just went to the website and I have to say that this hardware is hideous. Yeah, it is. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, like I... Like I, I was, you had mentioned this to me before, and I and I had made a note, and then I had promptly forgotten about it. And so as you mentioned again, I was like, I'm gonna pull the browser up, and like this one looks like a little miniature TV, like I don't like from right from 1985. I don't it, it looks like something your kids might build from one of those Kiwi crates or something they get monthly in the mail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then this Minecraft Mark One looks like a like a Wally's head without the rest of his body. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's I don't I don't know about the. I don't know, but they need some better hardware designers, I think, is uh, maybe maybe the problem with Minecraft. <laughs> they're, on, they're on a budget. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They might be limited by their hardware choices for sure. But yeah. But you, like I said, you, you can use the software anywhere, so you know, hmm. maybe that's interesting. But you know, it, it's interesting too because I think if you killed Alexa, it would also impact Alex, which is pretty popular service apparently for uh, Amazon. Uh, and then also, I think that would impact Connect because I think Connect uses a lot of the stuff they learn from Alexa and Lex to help do voice enablement for their support products. So, you know, it's one of those areas, you know, yes, this product may not make a ton of money, but it's enabled so many other things for them to build. It's it's sort of, found, it's not foundational like S3 is, but it's it's a pretty core piece of their MLAI uh, ecosystem. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about like, you know, the the data ingestion sort of pipeline that they have set up for that, that would you know, that, that really has powered those services. I've always just assumed that they managed to like productize the stuff they built for Alexa, right? So that they resell you Lex now directly and resell you these things that were developed to support it. But that's a very interesting. I mean, that's why, that's why Google's voice stuff or Google's uh, stuff is so good on this because they used Google voice and the, and transcribing voicemail messages as the training engine for, all of their AI for voice recognition. So that's why there's a so much so far superior because we all we all got excited about Google Voice where it would transcribe our, our voicemails and text so we actually read them because none of us like to listen to voicemails. And then it would say, you know, do you have a correction? And you would correct things. <laughs> and then they took all that data and they fed it back into their ML. So that's why Google is just really far ahead of everybody else in you know voice recognition and voice commands. And you know, I I also have a Google uh, home to puck somewhere in this house somewhere that's unplugged because you know, why I don't trust Amazon so much with my data privacy for Alexa, I really don't trust Google <laughs> with what they're doing with that data. Um, but, you know, it's it's definitely an interesting, uh, you know, there's so much power, but also so much risk. This device in your home listening 24-7. Yeah. I think for, for me, the, the thing that's going to get all those devices thrown out the window is just lack of good parental controls. At least the Google, the Google devices, you can tie different user accounts to and it learns your voice your voice print and, and you can restrict things based on who it thinks is talking to you. But even then, it's just really annoying having kids talking to a you know a machine in the corner when they're you, you could just end it having else. kids. It's really annoying having kids full stop. <laughs> it's actually uh, one of the big reasons why we got rid of all the Oculus uh, Quest devices in the house is because of the lack of parental controls. Ah, like yeah. there's just no way to protect your kids from that ecosystem and like, you know, if you don't want them to play a certain game, you can't block them by user. You can't do anything. You can't prevent people from messaging them or chatting with them on the headsets. Like, it's, it's horrendous. And so, yeah, you're right. Parental controls becomes a big issue in technology adoption when you have kids that you don't think about until you have them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Zuckerberg, because he's a robot, doesn't have children. And so <laughs> Oculus is horrendous. Correct. Didn't they just um, change their terms and conditions and basically ban kids under a certain age from having accounts on uh, 
on that now. Yeah, but like, I mean, yes, they, they've always not allowed kids under the age of 14 or 12. Mm. Um, but the the challenge there is, you know, I have an account. It just prevents them from having an account. And then they just use my account and then they go do stuff and I can't control my account either. So. Or they lie when they put in the birth date, right? Like, yeah, or they do It took that my too. son all of like three and a half seconds to be like, oh, okay, <laughs> then I was born in 1962 now. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I don't think Alexa's going away. I, I, I question the uh I question the, the source of the report. I, I, I question the five billion dollar loss. Um, I think the cost cutting will, will be there. I definitely do. And so do you get some talent drain because of that? Like I think they'll definitely trim the trim that. If it, especially if it's anywhere near five billion. Oh yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> well, I, mean, I mean, but they've like they've built so many devices uh under the Alexa brand name, right? Like you know, like they built a post-it printer, they built a um, like a cuckoo clock thing, and like they had all these really dumb devices that you know cost them money to build and develop, but just didn't make sense because you know. And, and like I like the idea of the post-it note printer, but it only works through the Alexa, which is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I bought one, and then I never use it because uh, I have to write a note and then send it to my Alexa for it to print it out on the post-it note. And like, it's way too much friction. I like, mm-hmm. I just want it to be a printer in my house. I just, I'll just yeah. bring you a pen off. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just it got, it gets the point. Of you just write it on pen. Yeah, it's yeah. much faster. So. I mean, that's that's what we want, right? We want someone following us around that can be dynamic, like a human, and do the, do the things, right? The the post note printer is a perfect example. Like, you just want to yell at the thing, have it spit out a thing, but then you also want it to also do other things, right? Like, it's too specialized in that case. But doesn't I mean Amazon has that new robot too? Didn't they the Astro? I would assume that Astro also uses Alexa technology too, wouldn't you think? Mm-hmm. I would assume. I guess yeah. I guess Alexa is just an implementation that, based on the primitives that they built for language recognition and, and all those other bits and pieces. So maybe some of the R and D cost that went into it actually you could allocate to those other those other services. So you know, maybe that's that's why I don't think it'll it'll fully go away, right? Because I don't think it has to, right? In order for it to make sense. Right. You have all these other business markets. You have the underlying voice processing. You have all these things. You have, you know, I don't know if the robots are here to stay because those are getting pretty universally panned. But, you know, I think it'll just exist. Maybe it maybe it won't develop as fast or maybe the quality of service will go down. Yeah. I don't think they need to do much work on the hardware. I've still got the, the pucks we got from, from reInvent years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they still work just fine. You know, yeah. it's the, the magic's in the software, not the hardware. So they could probably afford to not release a new device for a couple of years, and mm-hmm. um, and save some money there. Yeah, I'm I'm glad they didn't put them into every hotel room though, because that would just be uh, creepy. <laughs> it would be creepy, especially with when you learn about all the you know, data privacy things where audio snippets were being shared and, and all kinds of problems that they had. Yep, you have to have like big red buttons in your room, like right inside the door, like don't listen to me button and, you know, don't watch me button. Uh, turn off all the lights. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, you get all these like, oh, it's like a Black Mirror episode. You know, you get fr- fr- a free hotel stay as long as you live stream your visit to somebody. <laughs> I mean, that you know, the funny part about that is like, I'm pretty boring. It might work out. Like, I guess if you guys want to watch, you know, with that guy lying around. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you see, I'm, sometimes I like flick through TikTok or something and there's, like 8,000 people viewing the stream and somebody just sitting there doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. What, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> Some of the stuff I catch my kids, yeah, it's the same thing. Like, what? <laughs> it's just typing. Yeah. 
Well, like, <laughs> again, with her purchase of iRobot too, like, doesn't that also factor into into this? <laughs> well, that's the really confusing part, right? They spent all that money on iRobot, and then and then is that like is that related? Like, are they trying to replace some of that you know business and merge that together? Efficiencies there, like. Or even just looking at it. Maybe it was just the idea of researching that that triggered the article, right? Maybe. This could be a little telephone game. I, mean, I don't think the iRobot acquisition has been approved yet, so it's not done. Um, and then, uh, you know, we joked about it when they announced it that, that, you know, they really wanted to get Ben Kehoe. Well, he's actually resigned. He's leaving <laughs> iRobot. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's taking, he's, he announced on Twitter he's, uh, I think today might be his last day um, or maybe next week. But uh, yeah, he's leaving iRobot. He's going to take some time off to do something else take a break and then get back into something new and exciting. So we'll see what, where Ben ends up in the future. Maybe we'll get him on since he's going to be in on sabbatical. We can talk about stuff again, but uh, yeah, maybe I can finally ask him what he's going to do next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, I keep your, keep your eyes on that space. Cause that's a, that's a pretty big move in the uh, AWS hero ecosystem. So we'll see. All right, well, uh, I agree with you guys. I don't think Alexa's going anywhere. I just uh, I just signed up for the list to buy Astro, though, because I sort of want one. <laughs> but, uh, anyways, we'll see if I get approved to, to buy a little yeah. robot for my house. Because I have a I have a single-story house. He'd be, he, he'd be perfect here. <laughs> yeah. Wander around. So, All right. Well, I will talk to you guys uh, next week. All right. Sounds good. See you guys.